After it was clear that God was leading our family to uh, Waco to start uh, what is now this church, but what did not exist and there was nothing here, after it was clear that that was going to take place, and it was a process of a couple of months, it was a process of me getting used to the idea, it was a a long involved process of the Lord working through uh, various people and changing hearts and it was an exciting time. But in that process, once I knew that God was calling us to start a church in Waco from zero, I got, I got a little nervous. Actually, I should say the better word was I got anxious. The thoughts that were running through my head were like this. What if, what if the only people that I preach to on Sunday mornings are my family? And I thought... You know, what if we're not financially self-sustainable by the end of the three-year deadline that the folks that were sending us said, you've got three years, and then funds are gone? What if we get to the end of that three-year deadline, and there are no funds? What if somehow I blow it? I mess this thing up. Or what if the statistics of church planting come true for this church, that As the church planning experts say, five out of five churches, for five out of five churches, the original core group, by the end of five years, nobody's around. Wow. Imagine hearing that in church planning boot camp. Yay. Where are we going? I told this to my mentor and I told this to my friend and this is what he said to me. He said, Jeff, you are going to Waco to see if God will build his church. And all of a sudden, my heart starts pounding with passion and strength. And it's like, yes, that's right. That's exactly right. I can do that. I can, right now, by the grace of God, trust him to do something that only he can do. Because it's not about me. Right? Now, the spiritual giants of the past, I call them the ancients, they likened the church to a ship. And many times, though, they said that the church runs aground. It sinks, it becomes so ingrown that it sinks under its own weight and buries itself into the rocks. The church experts of this time say that the visible signs of like an ingrown ship, a ship that buries itself under the weight of its own self. Here's some of the visible signs. Maybe we see them in our own church. Maybe we don't. Maybe we can be encouraged. But this is good stuff to hear. You ready? Building programs instead of building people. That's a sign. It's a visible sign. Now, there are many signs that are more internal. And they have to do with more theological and biblical reasons. But those internal sources will produce visible things on the fruit level. So that's what these church growth experts are talking about. Here's some of the other things. Managing ministry instead of doing ministry. A culture of suspicion rather than trust and empowerment. Here's some others. A culture of power struggles instead of continually growing new leaders and making more and more disciples. Here's another one. Members face inward instead of facing outward. And here's a good one too. A culture of personal preferences and prejudices instead of a culture of the gospel. 
In other words, we're all about what we think we like and what we don't like instead of a culture of the gospel that is grounded and rooted in subversive and overwhelming love, joy, grace, freedom of the gospel. All right. Other times the ancients would say churches, though, just wander around in the ocean blue. They're going, but they're going nowhere. They're going in circles. And what they would say is that the most interesting fact about that, though, is that those that are on board don't even know they're going around in circles. Now, some of the visible signs that church experts say that are of a wandering ship, not a grounded ship, but a wandering ship. Here they are. Lack of vision. Lack of mission. Lack of purpose. In other words, there's no reason to get up in the morning except to have a cup of coffee. Okay? The other thing, as they say, is this. Personal comfort wins over the satisfaction of sacrifice. Here's another thing. Playing it safe trumps taking risks. Now, isn't that interesting? Fear of failure instead of, well, that didn't work. What's next? And here's the last one. There are little faith and little prayers heard on a wandering ship that go like this. Oh, God, use me. Okay? Now, what steers this ship? What steers the church? You know what the ancients said? Preaching. For some preaching, it turns the ship toward the rocks while everybody on board is paddling as fast as they can to get there. Other forms of preaching turn the ship around and around on the ocean blue while everyone's fast asleep. And then some preaching, Jesus shows up. And all on board worship and change on the spot in a regular, continuing, cultural way. Now, Preaching steers the ship, so I want you to hear me, though. There is lots of other worldly work going on in the church besides preaching. But what I want us to see and what the ancients want us to see and what our own confession wants us to see, though, though there's lots of cosmic work going on and it needs to go on and it's highly significant and otherworldly work going on, there still is only that God has appointed one steering wheel on the ship. And that is the preached word of God that comes from the pulpit. Okay? So without taking away from that, all I want us to focus on is just that. And so to lead into, well, what is going to come from this pulpit in the spring? What are we going to hear? So here's what I want you to see. What we're going to do is we're going to follow Jesus in the Gospels. And we're going to follow Paul in his first letter in Galatians. And what we're going to look at is come to find what our ultimate cosmic, transcendent purpose, mission, identity, and the deepest parts of our soul are meant to be. And then we're going to engage it, okay? So we're going to look at the way Jesus encounters people, and we're going to look at the way Paul, in his first letter that he was writing to a particular church, the way that the gospel was hitting that church, 
And in so doing, we find ourselves. Now, for some of us, what's going to happen is this. You're going to realize for the first time in a deep personal way why God has Redeemer in Waco and why God has you in this church. And you will find yourself passionately hungering and thirsting for more of the wonders of Jesus. And you're going to find yourself passionately wanting to be more and more involved in what he's doing all around you, okay? Now, for others of us, though, we're going to wake up a bit. We're going to get renewed and we're going to get revived. It's going to be like we're going to snap out of a slumber and we're going to recommit ourselves to why God has this church in Waco and why he has us as a part of this church. And you're going to passionately begin to hunger and thirst for more of the wonders of Jesus. And you're going to passionately hunger and say, oh God, use me, use me in this church. Use me in this community. Use us in Waco and beyond. Okay? Now, before we do this, we've got to finish Psalm 27. I cannot stand leaving things undone. So for two weeks, we're going to look at Psalm 27, finish Psalm 27. There's also another reason. As I ordered my books that were supposed to come in, and I had a study week last week, but they didn't come in until the Friday of my study week, so I need a little more time to look at the books. So we're going to focus two weeks on Psalm 27. So do you got the plan? The spring we're going to focus on, what's, what is Jesus about? Why does Jesus have Redeemer here in Waco? Why does he have you in the church? Why do we exist? Who are we? What is your worth? Ultimately. Those questions will be answered this spring in a way that I pray we get into the game even more. In fact, we'll be saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we got too many people out there already. You got to sit on the bench and take a breather for a little while. No, let me in. I'm sorry, you got to wait. We can't. No, I'm sorry, we can't have you out there right now. All right, on to Psalm 27. You ready? I'm on a expectorant and a powerful decongestant that is like sucking the water right out of me right now. Oh, ah, good. All right. Tim Keller and his wife knew a single woman named Anna. All right. Anna wanted desperately to have children. She eventually married, had two beautiful children, contrary to the expectations of all her doctors. All right. But her dreams did not come true. Her overpowering Drive to give her children a perfect life made it impossible for her to actually enjoy her children. Her overprotectiveness, her fears and anxiety, and her need to control every detail of her children's life was ruining her family. Anna's oldest child did poorly in school, and she began to show signs of serious emotional troubles. The younger child was filled with anger. And this is what Keller says. It's very interesting. He said, there's a good chance her drive, Anna's drive, to give her children wonderful lives will actually be the thing that ruins them. Getting her heart's deepest desire may end up being the worst thing that ever happened to her. Have you ever thought that your deepest desire 
might ruin you. Have you ever thought that getting your deepest desire might be the worst thing that ever happens to you? Psalm 27 is about the deepest desire there is. There's not a desire that goes deeper than Psalm 27. And here's the catch, brothers and sisters. This deepest desire does not ruin you. It's the best thing that can happen to you. It's greater and it's deeper than every desire that's out there in the world today and inside your heart right now. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. Welcome to one of the highest peaks in all the Psalms, Psalm 27. I'm going to read just the passage we're going to preach on, and that's going to be 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. The word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for a portion of your word that teaches us what it means to be a real person, that teaches us what it means to have a relationship with you, to genuinely and sincerely relate to you, that encompasses all the spectrum of the human condition and human thought patterns and human desires and human pains and sufferings and human hurts and human emotions. Thank you for the book of Psalms. And so, Lord, in this passage right now, would you, would you take us to the places we long to go? And we acknowledge that you alone are the guide and you alone are the shepherd. And would you fill us with your spirit for the journey? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Psalm 27, one of the highest psalms, highest peaks in all the psalms. Remember the point for the whole psalm. Those of you that are joining us, I'm going to fill you in real quick. Those of us that have been here, the reminder, what's the point of the whole psalm? The point is the psalmist is an experienced explorer who's been to places we long to go. And so when we come to the psalms, they might be a spiritual stretch for us. We're saying, I've never been to that land that he's talking about. I haven't been to these kind of, the verses, the places, the wonder of these places. I haven't been there. And that's okay. Because the psalmist has. And God has sent him back to get you and me. And to lead us to these wonderful places. Now what kind of God is like that? Just the whole structure of this psalm, you learn something about God. What kind of God looks at your weaknesses, looks at your messiness, looks at what we're really like, understands we don't understand what these places are like, 
and doesn't beat you up till you finally fix yourself. But actually goes back for you. And then tenderly, patiently, lovingly, graciously carries you to these places. What kind of God is like that? The God of the Psalms. Wonderful view into the wonders of who God is really like. Now, how are we going to get there? The psalmist in this passage tells us real quick in verse 11, the only way we're going to get to these places, teach me your way, O Lord, lead me on a level path. There is no other way. We have to be taught. We have to be led. So right away, when you approach this psalm, when you approach these wonderful places, the way in which we begin our journey, the way in which the expert, experienced explorer takes us to that place, he says, you know what? Brother, you got to be taught. you got to be led. Where we're about to go, your own effort won't get you there. In fact, where we're about to go... It's not found in any of your life experiences. It's not found in any of your cognitive synapses as they fire off. It's not found in any of your strength. You got to be led. You got to be taught. Man, does that comfort you? For people who like to strive and run and work, that's good news. And then even for those of us that like sitting on the, on the or couch potatoes, we like sitting on the couch. That's still good news. Because he takes us, he leads us, he guides us, okay? So notice that right away the psalmist is already telling you the dynamics of a relationship here that go on, all right? It's not cookie cutter. You don't get a quick formula of how to get there. It's follow me, a relationship, learning, being taught. Okay, here we go. The psalm divides nicely into four pieces. We've had four sermons. We've had two already. One through three, those of you who need orientation, that was the first. Four through six, that's the next part. We're at part seven through 12, and then next week we'll look at 10 through 13 and 14. So it divides very nicely according to this. Now, let's map out the textual terrain here in seven through 12. One of the most striking landmarks in seven through 12 is this. The psalmist doesn't pray until now. I mean, do you catch that? Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. This is the first time he opens his mouth and he prays. For six long verses, he's doing something else besides crying out to the Lord. So you've got to ask yourself. And as we read this, that just, man, why did he pray now? What was he doing in six verses up until this point? And here's the answer. He took a trip. He went on a little excursion before he prayed. Now, you Redeemer faithful, you know that there is a driving, one of the most driving, defining images and pictures of Redeemer, and I use it at every wedding, is the trip to the Grand Canyon, right? It goes like this. We all get on a bus and we go to the Grand Canyon. We unload and we go out to the Grand Canyon and we all line up and we're all looking at different things and pointing out different sights and being captivated and captured by the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of it all. 
We have a distant cousin who tried to jump a motorcycle over it. I mean, there's just great things to do in the Grand Canyon. Right? Fun stuff. And all of us, you know, our different personalities and styles come into play here. You know, those of you that are very enthusiastic and are loud like my brother. The Hatton family is loud. We're all loud. So we're out there. We're looking at things. Look at that. Look at that. Right? And then those of you, though, that are good Presbyterians, you're like, oh, look at that. Wow. You know, it's that kind of stuff. But then our charismatic friends are over there. Right? Listen, the response doesn't matter. Your personal response doesn't matter. The point is, if you see the wonder of the canyon, you will marvel. You might do it quietly. You might do it in a way that makes you serve someone. You might do it in a way that hungers and thirsts for more scripture. The point is, no one who sees the beauty of the canyon is saying to themselves, I need to work up wonder right now. Marvel, marvel, marvel. The psalmist goes on a trip. And in verses 1 through 6, he goes to the site of splendor. Do you get that? That's what he does for six verses. And notice, when you see wonder and you see splendor and you see beauty and you see glory and you see grace, you change. On the spot. There's all kinds of stuff out there that wants to fix you and wants to perfect you and we're all wanting our lives to be better and we want our marriages to be more happy and we want our children to we can go on and on and on sometimes for good reasons sometimes for anatype reasons that we just saw the point is what we all need is to take a trip to the site of splendor and you'll worship and change on the spot And that's to be a regular spiritual diet, okay? Now notice, this happens even amidst difficulty. So if you're saying, oh, you know, David, he's just always that guy that's just... I mean, what do you think of David? You think of him leading the procession of Israel, dancing before the Lord, and his wife getting embarrassed of him, you know, that he had, like, no fear of man issues. He could care less what people thought. Stripped down to his loincloth, praising the Lord, right? That kind of guy. So this is easy for him. He's one of those more emotional, passionate guys. You know, it's easy to do this kind of stuff for him. Oh, really? Well, here's the context of Psalm 27, verse 5. For you will hide me in a shelter in the day of trouble. That's not a 24-hour day. That's in a season of hell. Amen. Okay? Now you go to verse 1. Look what happens in verse 1. We find that fear tears at him from the inside. Why is he having to tell himself over and over again not to be afraid? The reason why he's telling himself over and over again not to be afraid, because he is afraid. If you were to cut him open, you'd find anxiety, fear, and worry twisting and turning his gastric juices like crazy. 
He's being overrun with fear right now. Then you go down to verse 2 and you find out it's not just stuff tearing at him from the inside. You've got stuff tearing at him from the outside. He's got oppression, opposition, and abuse coming at him from the outside. So much so, it's literally described that it's consuming his flesh. Verse 2. And then to kind of summarize everything all up, you go to verse 3 and you find out he's just saying, look, I'm surrounded. There's no way out. So you get the picture. There's no safety. There's no security. There's no stability inside him or outside him. David has no safe place right now. I mean, you and I would say, man, this poor guy, his whole world's falling apart. So what does a guy do when his world's falling apart? Well, we got four things we could do, four things David could do in this text. Here's four things he could do. First, he could blame the things that are letting him down and try to move himself to a better hope. So what would he start with? What, what would he blame first in this text? If you were to read this text, what do you think he would blame first? What's letting him down? Probably start with his opposition, his enemies, right? So he'd probably start blaming them. And then he maybe would probably move to, boy, some friends. Move his hope to some friends. Move his hope to his family, right? That could be one thing that he'd do. The other thing is he might blame his disappointing events, his life events. What are the situations, the circumstances that have been very disappointing and difficult. He might be blaming them. He could do that. He could blame that. And then what he could try to do is try to control them better. Make life events and situations bend to his will a little better. He might do that. That's the first thing he do. Second thing he could do is just blame himself and beat himself up. He could think something like this. I have somehow been a failure. I see everybody else is happy. I don't know why I'm not happy. Something must be wrong with me. I must be like broken somehow. If, that, if he doesn't do that, he could go to the third thing. He could blame the world. He could blame God. Right? Curses on everything. Let's say he's having girl problems or wife problems. He could blame the girl, the wife. And then he could get so, because it's just maybe one person that was the problem, you know, a certain Pacific woman was the problem. And then he could say, like, curses on the whole female race. Oh, we've got movements in our country based on stuff like that. Do you see that? But ultimately, in this third one, blaming the world, blaming God, he's going to get to the end of the line of blame, and at the end of the line of blame, who are you going to find? God. So he could say, are you an abusive father? But David does the fourth thing. David takes a trip to the sights of wonder. And it helps him. So much so that David now knows what he needs to do. It's now very clear to him. In verse 6, after his trip, he now knows what needs to happen. What is it? He prays. Now, 
What David prays for is the point of 7 through 12. What David prays for is the deepest driving desire in the human heart. What David prays for, what he asks for, is the best thing that could happen to you and me. Look at verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. When did that happen? When did God say that to David in verses 1 through 6? Do you see that? You said to me, seek my face, Lord. Where is that in 1 through 6? It's not there, is it? But it is there, isn't it? That's kind of the point. Something happened in verses 1 through 6. Something happened in the sights of splendor. Something happened in his trip to glory. Something happened. Because in verses 1 through 6, the sights of splendor spoke to him, wooed him, attracted him, captivated him, comforted him, impacted him, changed him. And he now gets in the game. Look how personal it is. In other words, in the sights of splendor, things got real personal to David. God drew near David. He drew near to him in such a way. We're not told the specificity of how he drew near to him. We just know that he did. Because if he told us the specificity, we'd say, that's the only way it happens. But the context here is that of a relationship and God drawing near to you and the wonders of who he is. And as he draws near to you and the wonders of who he is, he speaks and addresses your issues, your needs with very specific detail. How specific, Jeff? Well, how about this? Jesus says, he knows the hairs on your head. How about this? Insignificant, inconsequential things. I used to shoot them all the time when I was a kid with my BB gun. The crow. He knows when one of those things dies. So he saw every one I shot. That's how detailed he is. At the sights of wonder, the wonders of God hit David's heart. The sights of splendor reached the core of his being. Look what he does. You said, seek my face. My heart says, your face I will seek. He's in the game. What specifically was God calling David to see in the sights of splendor in verses 1 through 6? The answer is the deepest desire in the text. There's something very specific at the sights of splendor that you and I were made for. Do you see it? Remember Anna? What was Anna's problem? Was her problem the desire to have children? Everyone better be shaking their head. No, her problem was not the desire to have children. Good. Was her problem the desire to be a good mom? 
No, that wasn't the problem. Was her desire, was the problem her desire to give good things to her children, to have her children have a wonderful life? Was that a problem? No. Anna's problem was that her deepest desire was her children. Anna's problem is that her children were her deepest affirmation that she's okay, that she's somebody. That she has favor. That herself is intact. That was her deepest problem. Anna's children, as author Ernest Becker says, could not bear the burden of godhood. So Anna fixed her deepest desire for affirmation, acceptance, I'm okay. I am somebody. I have a sense of value and worth on her children. And her children couldn't carry the load of godhood. And so what happened was, is she's left empty with no sense of self. She's left empty with a gaping hole in her soul. No sense of self there, and more demanding, more controlling, more angry than ever. And then her children, they can't bear the weight, and they crack under the pressure of trying to be God to their mom. Now, let's not be too hard on Anna, okay? That's the first thing we want to do. Say, Anna, I can't believe you did that. Man, glad I don't do that. Well, we do the same thing. We deify. We place the burden of godhood on romantic love, sexual intimacy, our spouses and our children, our careers, people's opinions of us hoping there's no bad opinion of us on our beauty and our brains, on our positions and our influence, on our power and our possessions, and our status and our race. And none of these things can bear the burden of godhood And so we're left with a gaping hole in our soul. And Keller calls it, we're left with a cosmic disillusion. A cosmic disappointment. And then, as we continue to try to stuff it, we just keep hurting everybody around us while we do it. There's got to be another way to live. And that's why the psalmist is here to take you to that place. Look at verses 8 through 9. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. 
Hide not your face from me. What's the key word in that passage? It's used three times. In that very short passage, what is it? Face. Three times. What does that mean? God's face means God's favor. So when God faces you, he is favoring you. He's accepting you. He affirms you. He approves of you. He welcomes you. He loves you. He delights in you. He sings over you if you're Zephaniah. He smiles at you. Would you look at verse 10? It's a very interesting passage. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Here's what David's doing. He picks the most easily recognizable favor there is. He picks the most certain, solid, secure, safe favor there is. The favor that a mom and dad has for their child. Okay, that's what he's doing here. And then he says, though all favors fail, though all favors of people and all favors of places and all favors of possessions and all favors of pleasant situations and life events, though all those fail, the favor of a mom and dad for their child is fixed forever. So for a mom and dad to not favor their child, verse 10, forsake, turn their face away from, is utterly devastating. The child's soul is lost. It would be a signal that the whole world is out of whack. Chicken Little would be right. The sky is falling. Especially for the child. The child would be beyond recovery. The child would be lost in their soul. The child would be really messed up, perhaps thinking or others thinking, man, there's just, there's some forsakable, messy, subhuman material going on with that child. And this is what David is saying, brothers and sisters, even if it's that bad, even if I'm that bad, even if mom and dad forsake me, the Lord will take me in. The Lord will accept me. The Lord will welcome me. The Lord will be favorable towards me. And David led us to the point. He leads us to the better way. Are you ready? Here it is. Take your heart's deepest desire for favor, because you got one. You have in your heart a driving, pulsating, pounding, gaping hole 
for cosmic favor. Take it off your spouse. Take it off your children. Take it off being great. Take it off your career. Take it off people's opinions of you and approval and acceptance of you. Take it off your beauty and your talents and your gifts, your brains and your degrees and your titles before your name. Take it off frail favors and put them on the favor of the Lord. The Lord will take you in. How do you do that? The point in this passage is your deepest desires for cosmic favor, nothing else can bear that burden. So how do you transfer your trust from frail favors to a cosmic one? How do you do that? Recently, I was talking with someone whose wife is leaving him. Filed for divorce. He loves his wife. Utterly devastating to him. He's done everything he can. Doesn't want his wife to leave. In the course of our conversation, he says, Jeff, I've been thinking. Hmm? Okay. I think I should divorce her first. My eyebrows go up. And he continues. That way, she wouldn't have this horrific offense hung on her. It'd be all hung on me. I wanted to weep. Right in the middle of Rudy's. Verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. When you see Jesus was forsaken, when you see that he was cast off, when you see that God hid his face from him, when you see that he bore the full weight of all our horrific offenses, the Lord's favor will be yours. You'll have it. What kind of God would do that? Your deepest desires for cosmic favor. No other frail favor can carry the load, as Sam says to Frodo. No other one can do it. So, so life is found and recognizing you're so messed up, you just are addicted to frail favors. But you need a cosmic favor. 
That's your deepest hope and deepest trust. How do you do that? I want it. Work hard for it. The only way is by seeing a Savior who takes all your horrific offenses willingly and lovingly so that he's cast out, he's forsaken, so that God turns his face away from him, so that he never, ever, ever turns his face away from you. Amen.